0: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Derncast, a podcast fully devoted to the works of screen actress Laura Dern. And today, we are joined by a very special guest who has an eclectic resume, to say the least, and that is Chris Vanderkay. Hello, Chris.
1: Hello. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for considering me a very special guest.
0: Oh, I mean, of course, you're a very special guest because you brought a movie that is very hard to see. So that that, <laughs> that is makes true. That makes the very uh, preface appropriate.
1: Yeah, so, I made you work very hard to have me as a guest on your show.
0: Hey, it's okay. You know what? I needed to resubscribe to Amazon Prime to watch the boys, anyways, because that's all anyone can talk about on Twitter. So this worked out well.
1: Well, I'm glad to be of service.
0: So, who are you? You. Oh yeah, so let's get to that. Um, why
1: would I? Why would I dare to come onto this show to feel like I have something to say about Laura Dern? Um, so. Uh... Probably the thing that people know me best for, my wife and I are authors. We've written a lot of nonfiction books about uh, the history and philosophy of film. Uh, The Anatomy of Fear, which is an interview book that we did with uh, 25 horror and science fiction filmmakers, uh, was our first book. And then we did one, probably my favorite of everything that we've written in the nonfiction arena is called Horror Films by Subgenre. And the premise of the book is basically we took 75 subgenres of horror and we sort of broke them out to talk about the psychic pressure points like what things uh in each of those subgenres not only define them but uh, attract us to them and then you know did some recommendations and discussions of uh typical things that pop up in the subgenres um so that's our nonfiction work but i also recently just uh uh, moved into some fiction as well uh a book called bones beneath the pale which is sort of a a throwback pulp book about uh, nazi insects that i co-wrote with uh, wayne Klingman, and um so I guess you'd say I'm sort of a jack-of-all-trades. I've written a couple of films that no one has ever heard of, um, one of which premiered on the Lifetime Movie Channel many years ago. Uh, but primarily, I'm a screenwriting professor, and I do a lot of writing about the film uh, industry in general.
0: Wow. I mean, that's impressive. I, I especially appreciate how it seems like there's a big uh, a trend for collaborative work in uh, in your career, and that's uh, that's really impressive. So how did you learn to like really get into a good style of writing team, whether it be with your wife or with other people?
1: Well, the first thing I learned a long time ago is that I have far too many ideas to ever have accomplished any of them alone. And uh, I know there are people who are very, uh, very protective or very territorial about their work. Uh, I am less territorial about my work. You know, there's that old adage that uh, 10% of something is better than 100% of nothing. Um, I kind of feel that way about writing too, which is, uh, I love ideas. I love uh, creating ideas and putting them out into the world. And if they're not put out into the world, they don't do you a whole lot of good holding on to them yourself. So I found that collaboration with talented other people helps you to get more work into the world. And as long as you get along with the people and you think that they're talented, then, then why wouldn't you, you know?
0: Yeah, no, exactly. Like, uh, that is, that is perfect. And, uh, thank you. Thank you for deeming this podcast worthy to come on. So I appreciate that.
1: Well, it's, it's solely you. I actually can't stand Laura Dern, but I'm a big fan of your Twitter feed.
0: There is no way that is true because <laughs> no, not at I, all. I believe that nobody could uh, dislike Laura Dern and nobody could like my Twitter feed. So two impossible <laughs> things.
1: Uh, ah, called out so early.
0: <laughs> so what are your Laura Dern origins, or as we like to call it on the show, the Dernogens?
1: Yes. Dernagins, the early years. Um, so this will come as no surprise to you. I think everyone has mentioned this film, but I I feel like probably because you're either, otherwise you're going to have to do 18 episodes about Jurassic park. You should at least let us all bring it up in our individual episodes. Because of course, the first time I saw Laura Dern is the way most everybody saw Laura Dern, which is Jurassic park. Um, I may have in fact seen her in something before that, but it's the first time that she registered as an actress to me. And, um, and when I say actress, I just mean as a performer, not specifically as an actress. Uh, and the thing that blew my mind about her performance was uh, it's the same thing I love about Jack Lemon, which is that so much of her performance is in the reactions that she has to other characters. Uh, it's not so much in her dialogue as it is in watching her play off of someone else's scenes. Uh, some of the best scenes that Ian Malcolm and Dr. Grant have, uh, Sam Neil and... Um, uh, God, why can't Jeff Goldblum? Some of their best scenes are playing against her because she does such a good job of elevating those moments. And, uh, and it literally, I think it's funny, I, I saw the movie and then went out and bought the book because I was so compelled by the sequence where she was trying to solve the mystery of what was making the dinosaur sick, and they didn't solve it in the movie. And I was like, I'll be damned if I'm not going to find out what happened to those dinosaurs. So I went to the book, and sure enough, they did actually answer it in the book. So, uh, so Laura Dern is directly responsible for me reading the Michael Crichton novel.
0: Hey, I mean, that's uh, that's amazing in its own right. I, I feel like uh, Laura Dern's performance as Ellie Sattler in Jurassic Park was so influential that it actually affected the writing of Michael Crichton's characters in uh, Lost World. Because I feel like the way that he writes Sarah Harding in Lost World is directly comparable to how um, Laura Dern is performing in the original Jurassic Park, which is... Which is an interesting, I've never really heard it discussed before, but that's my opinion. Because when you read the original Jurassic Park novel, uh, Laura Dern is, is kind of, I would say, covertly feminist. Whereas in the film, she's overtly feminist, right? Like there's a mm-hmm. lot, she's a lot more overt with her feminism and the way that she kind of like triumphs over obstacles in the film. Uh, I, I think she's a really good character. Ellie Sattler is a really good character written in the book. There's not a, a, a dig against uh, the original writing by Crichton. But I feel like the way that Sarah Harding acts and speaks is almost a direct reference to uh, Ellie Sattler, the movie character.
1: Right. And it wouldn't surprise me that people, uh, both him and, and other creators who made other things inspired her by her, would be inspired by that performance. Um, you can see, I feel like, Spielberg and his editor recognizing scenes that might have been single shots becoming two shots or focusing on her simply because of, I mean, the conversation where uh, Jeff Goldblum is, is using the drop of water that goes down her hand to, to explain the idea of chaos theory. Um, that scene works primarily because of her performance. He's great, but she's the one that really sells the the – the explanation of that moment
0: yes exactly 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 but nay we are not here to talk about jurassic park <laughs> believe me one day we will talk about jurassic park we will probably have multiple people on to talk about jurassic park because literally everyone i talked to has mentioned jurassic park it's not uh not a surprise but uh one day someone will be like yeah i first experienced her in blue velvet and then we'll be married for whatever reason it'll just happen on the podcast we'll just become married because blue velvet. But anyways, uh what film did you choose to talk about with us and why did you choose it?
1: Well, I tried to think what's the diametric opposite of Jurassic Park. And <laughs> and uh the answer to that question is Rambling Rose. It's a, um I chose it for a couple of reasons. The first of which is not enough people talk about this movie. Uh, in fact, you and I had a bit of a struggle finding it anywhere. You had to literally purchase a physical copy of it. Um, I luckily have, uh, have seen it numerous times, so I didn't have to do a rewatch recently. I've seen it many, many times. But I did look it up just to see what the availability was. And I think you said it wasn't available anywhere in Canada. The only place I could find it was for $5.99, I think, through Apple Movies. Um, but this is a movie directed by the fantastic Martha Coolidge, who brought us Valley Girl – real genius. It was written by Calder Willingham, who wrote, I mean, just off the top of my head, The Graduate and um, uh, Paths of Glory, the Kubrick film. And it was Oscar Oscar nominated for actress and supporting actress, uh, Laura Dern and her mother, by the way, the first mother-daughter dual nominees from a single film in a single year. And somehow from 1991 to now, this movie has just kind of been lost to uh, recent memory as far as like, really high quality films with great performances and great direction go
0: yeah you know that's that's a very good point because i uh i had honest to god i had never heard of this film and i am i started a podcast about laura dern so i'm invested in her career i had not heard of this particular film and when i watched it i was just completely blown away because this is quite frankly this is an amazing film and i was uh, very surprised that it's not more in the lexicon as far as uh, just talking about film. Uh, d- d- why do you think that is?
1: Honestly, I'm curious about it. I mean, it has a deep bench for performers as well. I mean, you know, Lucas Haas, Robert Duvall, uh, John Hurd in the wraparound story, Robert John Burke, who I have to give a shout out to. Uh, Ashley Blackwell uh, would kill me if I didn't give a Robert John Burke shout out anytime he pops up. Um, but uh, the, I, I think maybe the one thing that happened is it's one of those... I don't know what you would call that genre. There's this sort of Tennessee Williams, Truman Capote style, Southern literature vibe to this film. You know, that the um, the older character comes back to his hometown and reminisces, and then we jump back into that reminiscence, that sort of vibe that I feel like I've seen in movies like Eve's Bayou or Stand By Me or that kind of thing. Like, and I, but I feel like that specific era uh, is is one that people don't necessarily, aren't that excited to visit. You know what I mean? Depression era South is not always the most fun place to go back to, especially a film that's peopled entirely pretty much by white characters. Um, You know, in today's day and age, it's not a film that necessarily speaks to an audience from its outer trappings. Although I do think the themes of the movie are super important now.
0: Right. No, that's, uh, that's very true. I, it's, it's, it's always an interesting, a storytelling wraparound device when they go with it being based upon a specific character's memories, right? Because I'm thinking like Stand By Me. I'm thinking about like the book uh, The Girl Next Door by Jack Mm Ketchum, which gets very much it's a a very dark film, but very dark book, sorry. But, But it's got that same wraparound segment where it's an older character reminiscing about the past and already implicitly you have the added layer of this is a person's memory going into the telling of the tale, which I think already adds an extra level of Uh, complexity to the story being told which I think is which I think is really which really interesting and it's funny because I mean I guess it's not funny but the last movie we talked about on the episode before this is the tale and the tale kind of uh Laura Dern's the tale I don't know have you seen that film I have not
1: but after listening to that episode it is it is in my queue to watch this evening I actually somehow didn't know it was available on HBO so I will be going to see it soon
0: it is uh, it is a a very interesting film and a, a very uh, brutalistic film, but it deals directly with the storytelling uh, trope almost of looking back upon the past and the way that we kind of change the details in our memory and And I thought that's a very interesting companion piece with this film because it doesn't really deal with the complexities and the the things that you lose when you're kind of like reminiscing about the past. But I think that if you go in with that thought process, it kind of adds an extra level to the film and the film is already great. So, Oh, for sure. I thought that was kind of interesting. Detail. Yeah.
1: I actually think subject matter wise, these films are, are actually having a little bit of a conversation too. So yeah, it's, it's interesting that they came in or in the order that they did, because I do definitely think a film so early on in her career. And then one that has literally just come out very recently in her career that uh, it's obviously a subject matter. That's of interest to her that she wants to, you know, she wants to have conversations about in film.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think even when you go back to some of her, uh, some of the works with uh, David Lynch, uh, she, is uh, an actress who does not shy away from roles that kind of involve sexual violence uh, or sexual Or sexuality in general, like this film does. Like she's not, she's an actress who doesn't kind of shy away from difficult roles. Oh,
1: for sure. Yeah, I mean, and I I didn't mention this in the opening. One of the other things that I became obsessed about regarding Laura Dern when I found out who she was is that uh, that she's second generation Hollywood royalty, essentially. Um, And in fact, you know, she acts with her mom in this film. But you know, her father is Bruce Dern, and I do wonder to some degree if there's some level of I don't want to say it's not responsibility, but maybe a um, a lack of concern for um when you have two parents who have been in the industry for 50 years do you look at your filmic choices as things you want to say rather than ways to keep your career moving? You know, when you've got an example of two fantastic actors who have always worked and who have always done great work and have always had work, maybe that is a, a great representation to her that you make the movies you want to make, not the ones that you think are going to make your career a success. And that's really the way to have a successful acting career.
0: Yeah, no, no, that's, uh, that's very true. I think before we get too far into this, uh, would you kind of want to detail exactly what this film is? is and what it's kind of about sure
1: yeah um well before we dive into the plot i did i I thought it was kind of interesting and maybe you noticed this too that it falls into this this film falls into that category of i guess you would call it sort of like the uh, you know this family or this place is shaken up by the arrival of a free spirit movie you know something like Teorema or um, Down and Out in Beverly Hills even like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest kind of falls into that category of this sort of free spirit character that comes in and essentially shakes up this household the way that everything is operated is sort of thrown asunder because of this the presence of this new person and essentially plot wise there's not a whole lot more than that going on in the film I, I mean it begins with uh, this uh, character Buddy I think it's in the 70s maybe he's driving back home to his childhood estate and he gets there and then starts thinking it's I think it's in voiceover he's thinking about you know when he grew up when he was a young kid and the first person that he ever loved aside from any family members was this girl named Rose and then we immediately dissolve into her showing up at the house for the first time and essentially we get the idea that it's, it's during the depression um, she was falling on hard times and I guess out of c- the kindness of their hearts the mother and father were burdening her into the home so that she didn't sort of get uh, sucked into the world of prostitution and have a terrible life so she's brought into the the home but of course because she's a character that hasn't had a lot of guidance in her life um, she she's like what you would consider in those 20s movies to be a troubled woman character you know she's a uh, maybe a little bit more flirtatious than everyone's comfortable with and she doesn't she doesn't maybe have a um, a full grasp of the power of her sexuality there's a level of innocence that goes along with the beauty that makes the situation kind of dangerous, not only for her but maybe some of the people around her. And essentially, the movie is kind of about a very traditional family trying to understand how to operate within the context of this new person.
0: Yeah, no, that's a, that is a perfect explanation of the film, uh, spot on, by the way. Uh, and I thought that was it was it was very interesting because it just kind of adds, because on on initial view you may be like, oh, this is kind of like a typical southern family but i think that the uh the the way that the mother uh Diane Ladd kind of interacts and the way that she kind of uh has a history of just being a very extremely intelligent woman and an extremely feminist woman um it kind of deals with a lot of Diane Ladd kind of going against the uh typical like chauvinistic errors and thought processes of the time which i thought was very interesting because it was a film that's kind of, like, about why you shouldn't decry this trope, right? Because, like, this is kind of, like, this is kind of a trope that you see a lot in, in uh, maybe writing and filmmaking, a lot about, like, this sexually active woman coming into this typical family and how the family reacts. And Diane Ladd's character feels like a character that kind of elevates the entire story because her character is kind of all about how you should not... Judge this woman. You should not do the typical interactions that a story kind of of this ilk normally would.
1: Right. Ironically, this movie's called Rambling Rose, which is a flower, and it's, very, it's almost uh, a corollary to something like Poison Ivy, which is sort of the thriller version of this story, of a woman coming into a house and then using her wiles in a, in a sort of, a, I guess you would say like a targeted way, sort of weaponizing her sexuality, whereas it's sort of the opposite with, uh, with Laura Dern's character in this. She's not weaponizing it at all. In fact, she doesn't necessarily understand and I think the capacity to which it affects the people around her. And I agree completely on the uh, what you said about um, about the, the mother character. I think she's – I'm sorry, uh, Diane Ladd's character. I think uh, interestingly because this was directed by a woman, it did something smarter than it had it been directed by a man, which I think is half of the movie is pointing out this fantastic character, Diane Ladd, and what she's saying and what she believes and what we as an audience obviously agree with regarding her. But the movie also um, – points out that just because the mother thinks that doesn't mean that there isn't still this white male hierarchy structure in her, in her house um, that is happening around her, sometimes without her knowledge, sometimes certainly without her consent, um, that Rose is still falling victim to. And I thought that was a fascinating way of pointing out that um, even a even a, a strong woman who stands up for the rights of individual women still may not be able to be there to protect a woman from everything she can fall victim to, even to people that she knows and, and trusts, you know, um, Laurie Dern's character, uh, falls for the father. And although they don't really consummate it in any serious way, he does sort of, uh, when he when he pulls back from that and he resists that, he automatically looks at her as that she's a problem now, and he has that sort of reaction where he's always trying to chase guys away from her. He's trying to keep her isolated, you know. And so there's that that aspect of him trying to control her body if he can't have it. And then obviously the you know the controversial scene I'm sure we'll get to with the 13 year old boy who um, uh, I, I don't want to say. Uh, forces his way onto her. But in, in some ways it wasn't very consensual what happened between them. Uh it happened because he was a white male in a household uh that witnessed his father doing something and assumed that meant he could do it as well. You know, so there's these cycles That uh, the movie's talking about in interesting ways
0: yeah for sure the the cycle of violence and the cycle of sexual abuse is is definitely a a topic that's kind of like brought on about this film and you brought on that it was uh, directed by a woman Martha Coolidge uh which is which is great apparently in the production uh Rennie Harlan who is a producer actually wanted to take over the directing chair himself and I'm really glad he kind of like found it within himself to be like, no, Diane, uh, Diane Ladd and Laura Dern and all these characters, this is a very women-centric story. I should let Martha Coolidge, uh, like, kind of, like, do this story herself and kind of step back and let her direct, which kind of like really elevated the my uh, my personal opinion of uh, rennie harlan in a way
1: yeah i was surprised to see his name um but then you know the more i think about it the more it occurs to me that uh, you know he dated laura dern i think post this film he was with gina davis clearly he doesn't have any issue with um strong female figures you know the only ones i know of that he's publicly been dating have both been very strong uh, female performers uh but yeah you see a name like rennie harlan the movie you don't think of is rambling rose you know
0: no no for sure i, I mean honestly what I assume, what i I associate with rennie harlan is mainly genre pictures right like either whether or not it's action movies with his then wife gina davis uh the long kiss Goodnight*, or like nightmare on elm street 4 the dream the dream warrior uh dream master which is a great film by the way but anyways but uh uh it's it's just a kind of it's it's very surprising i would say to, to see rennie harlan's name attached to this film uh so i'm glad that he had the restraint to step away and produce and kind of like give them mu- it's like it's almost like giving the mic to a female voice and uh you don't see a lot of that in hollywood so kudos to you rennie Harlan.
1: yeah i mean listen they he did better than we did because we've talked about two movies about women's issues for two weeks in a row now for two episodes in a row and it's basically been uh three white guys but
0: yes i know i know i look I know I have plenty of women on the on the mic and on uh, to future movies but yes i I understand that this yeah. is two female directed films pr- prom- prominently direct about female issues that do feature white guys so yeah.
1: Ah, we're aware. It's worse if we don't point it out, right? And, um, you know, honestly, the reason I wanted to talk about the movie is because I would rather that somebody be talking about the movie, and if it's us or nobody, then, uh, you know, I'll take us, right?
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Hopefully, uh, you know, women will be inspired and people will be inspired to check out this movie, and it will get cachet, so this will be kind of like a stepping point. That's, That's really what this podcast is about. It's about bringing you the joys of Laura Dern. And just kind of being like, hey, you should watch this movie. And then you kind of go to watch the movie, hopefully.
1: And and hopefully you have a greater experience than Grizzly 2.
0: <laughs> oh, Grizzly 2. The classic film which started out this podcast and uh, will probably never be discussed aside from uh, from the podcast. But anyways... Who won the Academy? Who stole the Academy Award for Best Actress in 1991 from Laura Darn? Do you know off the top of your head?
1: You know what? I'll be honest. I didn't look that up because whatever ends up I, – I don't like to retroactively be mad at something because of – something else being robbed for years. I didn't watch the West wing because they kept stealing all of the acting awards from the X-Files. And then I watched the uh, West wing and I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I understand that. This is a fantastic show. Uh, so, but like I spent many years upset at the West wing because they were stealing all of Gillian Anderson and David Duchovny's awards. So I didn't even look it up because I don't want to be mad at a movie that I either haven't seen or I haven't seen in a long time. So I didn't bother to look, but I do feel like both of them were robbed because uh, Laura Dern and uh, Diane Ladd were, absolutely fantastic and i mean of course robert duvall was fantastic too but i mean who's out there not talking about how great robert duvall is so
0: that's true that's true and now i did look it up because i had actually shifted this movie by a year i thought *Science of the lamps was 1992 but it was 1991 and it kind of swept that year i i can't understand yeah of the lamps now interesting and interesting enough. Silence of the Lambs is the only other film for which I would give this uh give this idea and put this concept in people's heads. Now, this the DVD that I got is is so old it had a option to watch in full screen on it. Uh that's how <laughs> that's how long. Now, I I would say this movie and Silence of the Lambs are the only movies to recent memories that I could actually hear an interesting argument as to watching this movie in full screen because so much of the film is kind of based on close shots of people's faces and their discussions and their reactions and their performances in nice close-up shots that seeing all of their face actually kind of adds an extra level of intimacy with them in the screen now i'll I'll be honest of course i watched it in widescreen because how could i choose the alternative but i would say that 1991 i guess was this weird year where if you really wanted to i would be okay with you watching it in full screen i don't know if that's uh, blasphemous to say or not
1: oh i i definitely think some people just shut this podcast off (laughs) (laughs) sacrilege um, but I understand where you're coming from. I mean, that's something that's happened as a result of streaming is people are shooting their films differently knowing that they're going to appear first on a television screen and not a movie screen. And uh, that does make a difference nowadays. So if you had a film that was in full screen that was focusing on half a frame, it would fill up much more of your screen at home than uh, than a widescreen f- uh, film would. So,
0: Yeah, it's, it's 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 interesting because, again, a lot of this film, asides from, there are a few uh, kind of like uh, widescreen films really nice vista shots of the homestead and the lake that's a side that's like that's associated with it that really benefit the nice widescreen look and kind of like brings that nostalgic feel if you've lived in any area and what this film is kind of trying to convey but for the majority it is a lot of very strong character pieces that are kind of like straight Focused on the character interactions.
1: Yeah, well, and so speaking of character interactions, I think that's a, probably a pretty good place to start talking about some of. I mean, I, the, the interesting thing about this movie is there's not really a, a clear narrative through line in the sense of a um, you know uh, actions and uh, and uh, circumstances coming from those actions, consequences in the in its traditional narrative structure. This is much more sort of like a, um, a slice of life story with. I mean, it builds on itself. Obviously, it's not you know, it's, it's not a um, Richard Linklater film, but it doesn't have a, 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 such a strict narrative structure. But it does have several individual passages of sections of the film that are really interesting and are really worth talking about. I think um, the I, first and foremost, I think the sequence that I mentioned earlier, which is uh, the sequence where Laura Dern's character Rose gets in bed with. Uh, is he 12, 10, 11, 12? I think he's 13 or something like that. He's
0: yeah, they they specifically mention 13, which again is is before we go too far into what you're just talking about, which is interesting cuz that is the exact age that Laura Dern's character is in the tale. So that's just kind of an interesting uh dichotomy.
1: Oh wow, yeah. It's so a sort of a a flip side of the image but yeah so so in this in this scene um she gets into the bed with him because a, a few minutes earlier in the film she has made overtures towards the father who uh, they kissed for a moment and it seemed like it might be going further than that but then he basically stepped back and he said this shouldn't happen i love my wife you know that sort of thing um and then she basically feels sort of wrecked about it so she goes to the only other person in the house really that is a male presence you know there's a very little boy but then there's this 13 year old boy and kind of looks to him as a, as a surrogate connection to be able to make some sort of an emotional um, connection to. And while she's laying in bed with him, of course, because he's a 13-year-old boy that's never had a girl in his bed, all he can focus on is what transactional sexual sexual element can come from it. And so he keeps sort of uh, prodding at her to be able to put his hand down her shirt. And then eventually um, he does that. And then he goes even further, eventually sort of putting his hand, uh, you know, sort of, I guess you would say manually masturbating her. Um, they don't show it, but you get the insinuation that that's what's happening under the sheet's Um, And it was, I I assume, a pretty controversial uh, scene at the time in 1991. Uh, But interestingly, I was looking around. I was interested in seeing if there was a difference between the ways people were looking at the films based on um, the gender of the reviewer. And one of the things I noticed, the first problem is there's so few female reviewers that get put on places like Rotten Tomatoes that it's hard to be able to make a a call like that. But I did happen to notice that there there were a lot of people that felt like uh, that she was victimizing – the kid in this scene. And I thought that was an interesting, like that she was the one that was being inappropriate. And while obviously the moment is inappropriate, I do think it's interesting that people assume that she was the aggressor in that sequence.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting and I would say a very complicated scene right because if you compare this to uh the tale which we talked about last week that's a very it's a very predatory male presence enacting upon a unsuspecting female right Mm -hmm. and this version of the tale is it's it's that it's that almost that same interaction but the ages are swapped right because this is a very predatory uh the the child is acting very predatory but she also kind of lets it happen right so it's that it's that idea of like it's a predatory uh, male towards a adult female, which kind of a predatory adolescent male towards an adult female, which is just, it, which adds a very interesting layer to the, to the scene. Yeah.
1: And I think obviously for me, the big factor between the difference between the tale and this is this, this takes place in was the late twenties, early thirties, right? So there's a very specific framework for how women were supposed to behave and what they were supposed to put up with from men, you know? And, and I think that that's, I think that's the key observation to to recognize that while uh, you don't have to go so far as to say you think that the the child is mature enough to realize that he's sexually abusing her, you certainly can't put the onus of the fault on her given the only thing that she understands about the world at this point, you know, uh, which is that uh, she was going to become a prostitute. She really only has one frame of reference for what uh, what men are and what men do, you know
0: yeah no, no no that's 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 very fair and and does add an interesting element to the film definitely looking at it uh, uh, as a product of its time right because she's only ever been kind of swept up in the kind of like the sexuality of the men in her life right because even robert duvall kind of uh you know kind of like quote unquote in his eyes rescuing her from that life right like that's kind of what he sees that he has done mm-hmm. and even in that first interaction with her he is like doing some like pretty overt sexual overtones towards her uh that that make her kind of like be like oh i'm she kind of like falls in love with him and tries to make that move later on and then he goes oh no 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 i'm but a humble good man but he pretty much like sexually assaulted her in that scene beforehand when he like slapped her butt and he like made all these very like overt comments towards her and then gets mad that she comes on to him right so like the only frame of reference she has is kind of predatory men now i think robert duvall's character kind of like evolves throughout the piece but I still think that he is kind of a predatory male.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, he has an arc, but it's a it's a very short arc. You know, he goes from being yeah. the thing that you're talking about to not as bad a version of the thing that you're talking about. You know.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. He's kind of like a, a shades of gray character because I feel like had there's this there's a scene way later in the text uh, where they're talking about whether or not to pretty much uh, sterilize her. Mm-hmm. Essentially, Like, that's what the, the scene is about. And it's, it's an incredibly powerful scene, an incredibly, like, traumatizing scene to watch as you see these two males, uh, one being a doctor, the other being Robert Duvall's character, uh, talk about whether or not they should just pretty much remove one of uh, Rose's ovaries in order to quell her sexual proclivities. And there is this very strong uh, undertone that... Basically, they are both doing this so that they can no longer feel sexually attracted to her, which is, like, it's really gross, but, like, that's the the undertone of the scene, is that both the doctor and uh, Robert Duvall's character are lusting after Rose, and they're like, urgh, I want to remove the temptation, so we want to completely, uh, d- like, sterilize her without her consent, or without her uh, willingness to go forward with this uh, this idea, and the, the wife, Diane Ladd, uh, who is only called uh, Mommy in the script, I believe, it's only called Mom or Mommy in the script, uh, is completely opposed to this idea and uh, goes against it. And I honestly think Robert Duvall wouldn't have even thought about it, had she not been there, right? Oh,
1: for sure. I mean, one of the things I come from uh, a—I'll f- uh, call myself a recovering fundamentalist Christian. My my uh, family was in the Southern Baptist Church, and so I know a lot about conservative Christianity. And one of the things that really rang strongly for me in this film is the way that uh, men, especially the white, the older white men that we see here, the patriarchal men, uh, they externalize their lust as being the fault of the person. After whom they are lusting, they're at fault for uh, internal feelings, and so they're the ones that should be punished for how they're feeling. And that's basically what we were witnessing in that sequence was two men supposedly trying to solve a problem, but essentially what they're trying to do is absolve themselves from having to feel the way that they've felt. She won't be a threat anymore, so they don't have to change anything about themselves. And um, I think if for no other reason than that sequence and a couple of others, I think every guy should watch this movie just to witness what women have always instinctively understood, which is the sheer level of control that other people have over a woman's body. Um, In this sequence, I would even argue that although what Diane Ladd is doing is great because she's she's advocating for um, uh, Laura Dern's character, she is also still having some say over Laura Dern's character's body that she doesn't. Do you know what I mean? Like – Uh, Yeah, uh, no, that's
0: that's very true.
1: A young, emotional woman shouldn't be able to make decisions about herself. So it has to be these, you know, that's sort of that white hierarchical structure, right? It's got to be the older, wiser people that always know what's best for you, especially if you're a woman. And that's really what this movie is quietly pointing out all along. I think, again, I credit Martha Coolidge a lot for recognizing the way that she executed the film. Everything positive that is said about Rose is looks-based. Everything negative that is said about Rose is personality and emotion-based and i feel like that's clearly emblematic of the way it happens in society but she did a great job of structuring it in this film so you can't help but notice that
0: yeah no that 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 is very true and is is one of the the, the strengths of the film because again this is you you got to look at it like as is this is 1991 right like this is this is way before uh, the movements that we're seeing today has, has happened, and these movements have always been there, right? Like feminism is not new, mm-hmm. but the the idea of it becoming like a, a term in popular culture hadn't quite hit the zeitgeist, at least, uh, at, least to what I, at least from what I'm remembering.
1: Yeah, and I think there's an interesting thing. You see the ebb and flow of the way that society shifts. From uh, conservative to progressive and back, because you're right, it was before that movement was a real big public conversation. Then it became that. And now, at least in America, I'm I'm staring at this movie and looking around at society and going, Jesus Christ, we're still having this conversation.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's very true, right? Because like the entire debate about abortion is, in essence, this conversation we see in this movie.
1: Yeah. Right. The the, like the most clever thing this movie did was they, that she had a cyst inside of her that needed to be removed because it takes away the hot button idea of abortion being the conversation. This movie is really just saying a woman should be able to be in control of her body and what's happening to her. Right. It it removes the idea of this, um this uh, I guess you would call it sort of the, the cudgel, the thing that people put in between, which is the morality question of there being another life and everything. And that's what people use to ignore the fact that you are controlling another human being's body.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because... Uh... Uh, quite frankly, these same conversations would be happening even if you remove that hot button topic and that is exactly what this movie shows yeah. right yeah which Absolutely. which is amazing right because like uh again it 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 uh, adds to the idea that's like why are we not kind of uh, exalting this film and talking about this film all the time like why has this not entered the public lexicon and entered the public consciousness? in in such a powerful way and i i wonder if that is due to one the frankness uh in that it deals with these issues and two that that scene we were discussing with the 13 year old boy right like i yeah. wonder if 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 dealing with that so frankly and 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 adding in such a very complex issue to talk about is kind of what has kind of held this movie back from public consciousness a little bit i don't know what what do you think i
1: mean well it certainly could be true because in the uk 30 seconds of the film was cut out specifically because they felt like it it crossed a specific boundary the child protection act i think it's called so 30 seconds of that movie was excised there
0: um so yes even in 19 that's sorry i don't, don't mean to interrupt you but even in 1991 uh there are still elements of like the video nasty elements and and this does not definitely not qualify in that idea but the the the, uh, the UK film market has uh, always been kind of a little bit more touchy as far as hot button topics go so i'm surprised that 1991 they were still like that
1: yeah i mean it has since obviously been aired unedited on television there but i mean i think to a lesser degree it's it's like a smaller version of what happened with the tin drum you know even though the characters were older well one of them was they were being portrayed as younger and anyway but uh yeah I, i mean absolutely i think without that scene this film probably would be more talked about but i also think it's possible that 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 scene is one of the things that puts the point of the film in such stark contrast that you couldn't lose it without in some ways um, sort of defanging the point of the movie to begin with.
0: Oh, for sure for sure i I, I definitely would not uh, advocate for excising that scene because i I do believe it 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 adds an extra layer of complexity and forces a lot of uh, very interesting catharsis and very interesting thought process that you have to do after you finish this film, right. I don't think film should be something that you just kind of... Well, okay, certain films you can just watch and enjoy. I don't mean to say that film as an entertainment idea should not be uh, continued. But I'm just saying that I think that uh, films like this should not be neutered in the fact that it wants to challenge you. And I think the the idea that it wants to challenge you and force you to think is very important and is something that we should kind of... uh, accomplish and kind of hold up in especially in film criticism and film discussion
1: yeah i honestly the thing that shocked me the most is when the remake of the beguiled came out by sofia coppola i can't believe there wasn't a conversation about that movie and this movie uh just because of the way that it was playing with uh gender politics specifically gender politics in this this past of the southern United States and I feel like there's a very interesting conversation going on between both of those movies that um, crosses lines of of consent versus force uh, crosses the uh, ideas of Uh, I guess you would say of sort of like um, white male hierarchy, even though there aren't that many males in The Beguiled, that's kind of what they're commenting on. I was just really surprised that this did not pop up in the conversation. I mean, obviously they talked about the original Beguiled, but...
0: Right, right. So uh, for people who are not familiar with The Beguiled, uh, which kind of give an example of what you're talking about, kind of just explain the
1: Oh, right, yeah. um, Sofia Coppola remade uh, an old Don Siegel film starring Clint Eastwood called The Beguiled. And essentially the movie is about five women... I want to say sisters. I think it's five or six sisters that live on this plantation estate in the South during the Civil War. Um, There's no men around. There's really not even much in the way of servants. They're all just sort of in this isolated estate. And then one day a soldier shows up, an injured soldier played by Colin Farrell, and he's on the estate. And. Uh, the, the dynamic in the house completely shifts because of the presence of this man and the energy that he's giving off and the way that he interacts with certain people as opposed to other people, and what that means uh, both between them and between the others who are noticing it. And it just becomes this sort of um, dance of confused interactions uh, that escalate into a circumstance that I won't spoil because it's very interesting where both of the originals go. But I feel like there's, a, there's definitely a conversation to be had between those two movies. And so I was just really surprised when – the Beguiled came out, ended up getting nominated for so many awards, and nobody ever drew the corollary between these two films.
0: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good point, point. Uh, and I again I'm surprised because I don't I don't recall ever hearing this movie referenced, and I think that especially in a day and age when they're actually kind of revisiting and remaking Valley Girl, I think of all that, I think that all of Martha Coolidge's uh, work should be kind of like revisited and kind of like put up to the next level and talked about in the same way that everyone's going to inevitably be talking about the original Valley girl, uh, when the remake comes out. So hopefully, yes, hopefully it does. Fingers
1: crossed both this film and real genius starring Val Kilmer. Those definitely deserve a public reevaluation.
0: Of course. Of course. How do you think this, uh, kind of, uh, effects and kind of is situated in your evaluation of Laura Dern's career?
1: Well, this – because of the only two films we've really talked about in her career on this episode are this film and Jurassic Park, I think it's sort of perfectly emblematic. Like that's literally a microcosm of the Laura Dern experience in film, which is she's, she's so – she's basically like – maybe it's a bad analogy, but she's like the Danny Boyle of actresses. She can shift from these enormous – Uh, tentpole films, right? Jurassic Park and The Last Jedi. And she could just shift over to stuff like this in the tale. I use Danny Boyle because I think of like, you know, he's got little films like Millions and Trance. And then he's got like these, you know, big tentpole movies like Slumdog Millionaire and awards um, films like 127 Hours. And I just I'm always amazed at sort of the chameleon like ability to hop back and forth from very big mainstream fare to um, very small, very personal stories that are saying something very important and maybe a little bit controversial. Um, that's not a super easy thing to do. And maybe, like, it's, like I said, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier, about having been able to watch careers um, from her parents. I mean, when you think of Bruce Dern, he's been in a lot of amazing movies. I, the Burbs is one of my favorite films of all time. But this guy was making movies like The Trip, in the late 60s, you know, he, he was making drive. She said a uh, drive. He said, you know, like he's making like movies that are thoughtful and political and groundbreaking and, and um, iconoclastic, but not mainstream. And I think it's really interesting that he could just sort of jump back and forth. He could be in John Wayne's The Cowboys. And then, you know, he could be in um, The King of Marvin Gardens. You know, like he can make that jump. And it's clear to me that at least in some unconscious way, she was definitely influenced by that by her family because she's still doing that to a degree now. She can make the tale and then she can star on Big Little Lies, which is one of HBO's biggest hits in recent years, you know?
0: Yeah, no, for sure. I think I think Laura Dern is specifically interesting because honestly, when we, when we kind of like boil it down, her only mainstream work, like her only like really hit the big zeitgeist work – is Jurassic Park, The Last Jedi and Big Little Lies. At least that I can recall straight from straight from the top is she's not unwilling to tackle these kind of like big mainstream roles, but she she really does not shy away from difficult roles if you look through her career and and I think that it's a it's very interesting to talk about uh, the tale and this film uh, directly uh, after one another because she's not afraid to work with female directors. I, I recall there was that there was an article that was recently released about Leonardo DiCaprio where I, I think it was I don't know if it was a Time magazine article or it was some decently huge publication was talking about the greatness of Leonardo DiCaprio and then a lot of people kind of like clapped back about that and was kind of like well he's like kind of worked with very safe people and very safe directors and also a lot of male directors he's actually never worked with a female director i believe i believe maybe there was like one or two performances with a female director but if you look at laura dern she is constantly willing to take roles that are extremely complicated extremely difficult i can't imagine uh accepting this role In 91 and then two years later being in one of the biggest films of all time, Jurassic Park, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's such a huge shift and a huge change and, and shows how kind of fearless she is. And I'm sure that does uh occur a lot because she does have that kind of like safety net of being hollywood royalty but i think it's uh applaudable nonetheless right
1: yeah well another, another thing i think that i like the most about laura dern is her Oh, i don't know if you can hear my dog freaking out in no, the distance that's
0: fine. that's fine you know what dogs dogs are welcome on the podcast
1: Laura Dern loves dogs. Um, in fact, I think she was in Year of the Dog, or maybe I'm thinking oh. of something else. Anyway, um, but one of the things I love about Laura Dern is it's more important to, for her to play the character the way that the character deserves to be played than for the character to be liked. Um, and even in this film, I think one of the powerful things about the performance is that she never, she never plays it like we're supposed to give her sympathy. I do. But she never plays it that way. I think the same is true of roles like The Tale. Certainly it's true of Big Little Lies is she tries to find the heart of the, – the truth of the character more than uh, whether or not this role is going to be something that people will notice and like or will sympathize with. I think her performance in JT Leroy is maybe the best recent example of that. She plays a, a deeply unlikable character, but she does such a good job with it that I don't ever stop – I don't ever like the character more. But she um, imbues them with a deep honesty that allows me to still connect to the story even when I can't um, feel the empathy that I, I would want to, you know, in the sort of standard cliched way that you would with like a, a Hollywood blockbuster, you know?
0: Yeah, no, that, that, that is very true. Uh, I'm, I'm genuinely surprised that we don't talk about Martha Coolidge as a director more, right? If you look at her career, it, it doesn't have uh, as many uh, big movies as I would like right like it's kind of kind of depressing uh, just looking at uh, her career afterwards right she did a few TV movies after this things like a lost in Yonkers but nothing else that really kind of hit the hit the big zeitgeists uh, which is kind of unfortunate she's kind of been uh, doing TV series which there's nothing wrong with doing TV TV series and TV movies. Uh, it's just sad that we don't kind of like raise her up and talk about her. Yeah.
1: You know, it's interesting. Uh, I'm glad that you brought that up because there has been this weird thing I have noticed, which is that a lot of directors that came up in the independent scene of the nineties, uh, they have ma- been able to maintain a career but it has primarily moved to the small screen in many ways. Like I think of John Dahl as another example. He did The Last Seduction which was a, a really well received you know, noir when it came out in 94 and then this thing sort of happened where like those mid-budget respectable films that are interesting and quirky but maybe not super big blockbusters they just started to fall away at a certain point and so the people that were making those they had to go to the only place where those kinds of stories are still being told which is sort of narrative and serialized TV. So people like, uh, like we're talking about here like Cool Coolidge and John Dahl, all of these great filmmakers from the '90s and the early aughts, they sort of they, they did what they had to do to keep working in their career, which is to move into television.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. I think uh, I think it's worth noting that the first uh, full length feature Martha Coolidge has done since 2006 is being released this year, and it's called I'll Find You. Uh, And that is a drama. So if you're interested in her career, I would uh, kind of recommend uh, checking that out. That's also a period drama, which is interesting because the movie we're talking right now is a period drama of the 20s, I believe. I believe this movie takes place in the 20s, if I'm not wrong. Uh,
1: The one we're talking about, Rambling Rose, you mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's.
1: Rose. I feel like the only thing they ever specifically said that oh, is the depression.
0: The depression era. So I guess that makes it the thirties. Yeah. Very, that's correct. Yeah, very so. possibly
1: the end of the nineteen twenty nine, but more likely the thirties.
0: Yeah, that's true. I, I. I guess I only thought of the twenties uh, instantly because at one point you do see Rose wearing a very flappers esque outfit, uh, which if you don't know, the nineteen twenties were uh, the flappers were a very uh, distinct style from that era. Uh, and I think at one point Rose is kind of uh, being emblematic of that style. Right.
1: Oh, I can't believe I forgot to bring this up when you mentioned it. Silence of the Lambs, uh, being the film that swept the Oscars that year, um, Laura Dern actually tried out for the role of Clarice Starling and did fairly well. But apparently, they didn't think she had the cachet at the time to to headline that film.
0: How? How could you not think? So, I mean, I guess, I guess that's a weird that's a weird thing because I don't know. That's a weird role because I think uh Clary Starling is such a amazing role uh and is such is done so well by Jodie Foster that like it's hard to imagine another person in it, although they tried. Uh sorry you can't. Hmm. You can't Hannibal doesn't work because I don't think that character works as a, as another actress, but I'm sure if Laura Dern had done it, it would have been great. Yeah. But I just thought it was a, is, it was a fun
1: it's... note. She said, okay, I didn't get silence of Lent. I guess I'm just going to go get another movie and get nominated uh, uh, next to it.
0: Yeah. That's crazy. Cause it's so, it's so interesting. If you look at her career associated with her mother, Diane Ladd, because uh, when Jurassic Park was released, Diane Ladd was in a different movie uh, called Carnosaur uh, <laughs> Which is not a good movie, but was made by Roger Corman as a response to Jurassic Park and came out a few months before Jurassic Park uh, and featured dinosaurs and Diane Ladd. So that is uh, that is interesting. That her careers, that at this point in their career, they're working together, but a few years later, they would be working against each other. But not really. I think they just kind of took the roles just because, but. Hey, I think that's kind of a funny right. You, you got to
1: pay the bills, right? But uh, yeah, exactly. But they also, I mean, they obviously work together in other films as well, too. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're I'm sure going to cover at some point. Um, uh, God, why the can't I think of David? Thank you. Yes, the David Lynch film.
0: Yes, of course, of course, we're going to talk about Wild at Heart. How could you not? If you're if you're doing a Laura Dern podcast, you got to talk about Wild at Heart because that is a that is a crazy movie. And I definitely bought that on Blu-ray, which again, why is this movie not on Blu-ray?
1: Yep. Well, if if this podcast does nothing but get us the entirety of uh, Laura Dern's resume on Blu-ray, with the exception of Grizzly 2, I'll be pretty happy.
0: Uh, I will be happy as well, but I include Grizzly 2 on that. <laughs> Please give us Grizzly 2 on Blu-ray.
1: Both, both cuts.
0: <laughs> both cuts. Don't be a coward. Give us both cuts, Shout Factory, or whoever is listening. Anyway, I think we've had uh, a very interesting and very frank discussion about Laura Dern and her career and the film as a whole. Do you have any final thoughts about the film that you chose, Rambling Rose? I
1: think I I think I said pretty much everything I wanted to say. Uh, the only thing that I think is worth noting is I, I know it's really hard to find. People are going to have a really hard time finding it, probably going to have to go buy a physical copy. Or like I said, I think there's one place you can get it for, it's only like five ninety nine at the one place you can get it. Um, but it's, it's really a movie worth seeing even if you don't own it even if it's just a rental it's a movie worth experiencing for the fantastic performances from the entire cast Uh, we forgot to even mention lucas haas um fantastic young actor he was i think witness was the one that sort of put him on the map but this was a handful of years later and uh he was already operating i think far in a far um stronger and more mature way than a lot of actors his age would have been at the time um john hurt is great even though it's a small part um and like I said, Robert John Burke is fantastic as the the police officer she ends up eventually marrying. Um, but yeah, I, it's it's worth hunting down. It doesn't sound like the the um the most exciting or sexiest movie in the world from the description, you know, as a reminiscence of a young boy living in the the Depression era South. But it really is a powerful film with a couple of really amazing performances at the center of it.
0: Yeah, no, that is uh that is an excellent way to kind of sum up the film. It's definitely worth watching. It's definitely a film that deserves to kind of be canonized and deserves to be watched and uh, kind of reserved so i would definitely recommend whoever owns the rights i hope you listen to this podcast and i hope you go hey we can get at least two confirmed purchases right now on the air we will both buy the blu-ray i guarantee yep. it so please put this movie out and if you can and if you have access to it i recommend searching it out uh the artisan dvd is out there i got it for 10 bucks that's not a whole lot I know you're going to have a DVD sitting around your house, but it's worth watching. It's worth experiencing. It's a powerful film. It's a film that doesn't flinch away from tough subjects and really kind of is aimed at making you think and making you critically uh, experiencing the media that you watch. And I think that's a very important thing to uh, kind of seek out in this day and age.
1: Yeah, and it it also holds the distinction of being the only film ever where a mother-daughter duo were nominated for academy awards for the same film
0: exactly exactly the only other uh close uh close interaction with that is on golden P- on, uh, on golden pond which pe- featured jane fonda and her father uh and that is uh not a fa- is a father-daughter not a daughter mother right uh, combo yeah so and i
1: think the same thing happened with um John Houston and Angelica Houston as well in something. Or maybe was it oh. John Houston and Walter Houston? I don't know. There's many generations maybe, maybe. of Houstons.
0: There's a lot of Houstons. There's a lot of Houstons. But anyways, thank you for thank you for coming on to join us. Where would you like people to uh, follow your further work, Chris?
1: Uh, well, I, the best place to go is obviously going to be to find me on Twitter because my stuff is spread out sites and all over the place. But if you follow me on Twitter, you can find me at the letters CK and then my last name Vanderkay, which is V A N D E R K A A Y People get fooled sometimes. I'm Dutch, so there's two A's at the end.
0: Okay, okay. Oh my goodness. Okay, before we go too far away, we mentioned John Hurd. John Hurd is in this movie and The Tale. I just did the connection right now. His la- his last full fe- uh, one of his last full-feature films is The Tale, and, re- and he was the older uh version of Lucas Haas's character in this film. So I guess this is a double John Heard uh, double feature.
1: My mind is blown, too, because the, the the fact that this would that would be his last film is a film that is in some ways like a mirror reflection on a film from th- almost 30 years earlier. That's uh, unbelievable.
0: That's crazy. And in both films, he is playing the er, er, older version of a character we've seen in the past. Wow. So Man. that is... That is insane. You couldn't orchestrate
1: connections that good in a podcast if you were trying.
0: No, of course not. Of course not. So I guess here's your double feature if you want to cry a lot and be very depressed, but be more enlightened afterwards. Watch Rambling Rose and the Tale right after each other.
1: Oh, cry and cry, cry.
0: Cry and cry some more. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Derncast and have yourself a Derniful day.